all went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as we know by now, today is Canada Day. 145 years ago, on July the 1st, 1867, the British colonies of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Upper and Lower Canada were united into the Dominion of Canada by the British North America Act. Uh, Anyone who's gone to school in Canada knows that story. Now this day, July 1st, formerly known as Dominion Day, was formally changed to Canada Day as recently as 1982. And I didn't learn this week, uh, until this week, how that happened. People had been talking about changing the name to Canada Day for some time. And a bill was actually introduced once, but it ended up getting defeated. But when the change happened, it was introduced into Parliament as a private member's bill when only 12 members of Parliament were present. Eight fewer than was needed for quorum. But apparently, according to parliamentary rules, quorum is only enforceable at the start of a parliamentary sitting or if someone draws attention to it, which nobody did. The bill passed in five minutes with no debate. 
through Parliament. Now, does that not sound Canadian to you? Art, I trust that I got that right. Wikipedia tells me that. On Canada Day, we remember and we celebrate the fact that no matter your view on government and politics, we belong to a dominion. We order our lives within the context of its laws and authorities. We own our responsibilities and we enjoy the benefits of living in this country. And one of the activities often on Canada Day in various cities is the swearing-in of new citizens where people take the oath of allegiance to Canada and to our Queen and to the laws of the country. And to be a citizen of Canada is to live in a dominion. It's to live under an authority. Last week, Freddie preached the first part of Acts 16 when Paul comes to Philippi. In a few weeks, he's going to preach the rest of that chapter. He mentioned last week that Philippi was a Roman colony. That means that it was a city of Rome outside of Rome. And the inhabitants of Philippi were granted Roman citizenship. And they lived as Romans, but 400 miles away from Rome. And when Paul later wrote a letter to the Philippians and reminded the Christians that they were citizens of heaven, it was a language that they understood. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this of Christians, of us, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son he loves. And so living in one world, we are citizens of another. Residents of Canada, but we live in a dominion of whom Christ is king. And central to the idea of Christianity is the kingship, this idea of the kingship of God as it is expressed in the lordship of Jesus. It's why we call him Lord and not just Savior. So now today as we move out of Acts 16 and into Acts 17, this reality of Jesus' kingship is brought to our attention again. And living as citizens of his kingdom moves us in a different direction than those who follow the decrees of the world. Just a reminder, Acts 13 through 28, those chapters, we read the account of the journey of the gospel of the Lord Jesus to Rome, which is the home of Caesar and the seat of absolute authority in the Roman Empire. And the story of that journey is the story of Paul as he brings the gospel from city to city and ending up in Rome. Three journeys as a missionary, the final journey as a prisoner of the state. Paul's first journey with Barnabas, we read about in Acts 13 and 14, took him about 400 kilometers from his home base in Antioch. His second journey began in the final verse of chapter 15, will lead him 1,000 kilometers from home. And he revisits the cities that he visited on his first journey. And eventually God brings him westward or westward across the agency to Macedonia and to Greece. And for the next handful of years, he ministers among the Philippians and the Thessalonians and the Corinthians with other brief stops, including one in Athens. And so it is, as Freddie said, that the gospel comes to Europe. 
And in Acts 17, today, Paul comes now to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And he comes there from Philippi, where, as we heard last week, the first new Christian is a woman named Lydia. After this, Paul casts a demon out of a girl, which upsets those who are making money off this girl. And so Paul and Silas, his ministry partner, get badly beaten, thrown into prison, but they're miraculously released, which in turn leads to the conversion of the jailer and his family. The city leaders then ask him to leave the city. So it's, it's quite a time Paul and Silas have had among the Philippians, but not without some fruit, without some effectiveness. And so at Acts 17, verse 1, they traveled 100 or so kilometers from Philippi to Thessalonica. Excuse me. To get there, they travel through Amphipolis and Apollonia. So they're making ministry stops and rest stops along the way. When they come to Thessalonica, there is a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. I find it interesting that what Paul is doing in the synagogue is he is reasoning with them from the scriptures, that he is explaining and proving to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He was proclaiming Christ, but the way that he did that was to reason, to engage with the people who knew the Old Testament. He says, let me walk you through the Old Testament and show you that the Christ has to suffer. In Acts 17 and verse 17, in, in Athens, Paul reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace with the Greeks. In Acts 18, verse 4, he reasons in the synagogue every Sabbath and tries to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18, verse 19, they came to Ephesus and Paul stayed, went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. I love that word. Sometimes we're tempted to believe and our culture would have us think that to become a Christian is to set aside reason and to plunge yourself into the reality of faith. That faith and reason are opposites and to be a Christian is to set reason aside and to just trust in the unknown. And I love the reality that I think Christianity stands up to scrutiny. You can look at the Old Testament in a Jewish context when they receive the authority of the scriptures and say, look, your authority, your authority points to Jesus as the Christ. In our culture, we don't have the Old Testament as our authority. You walk up to Joe on the street and don't say, the Bible says, and he'll say, I don't care what the Bible says. But we can, we can reason with people. That the creation points to a personal and good God. We can, we can reason with, with logic about the origins of things and, and say there has to have been a personal God behind this. A God who is good. Let me tell you about that God and then show them Jesus. 
We don't just preach at people. We can dialogue and we can reason. And I love the fact that Paul is able to do that. And what Paul does here is he goes to the scriptures and explains and proves from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ, whoever that is, to suffer and to rise from the dead. All kinds of prophecies and statements made about the Christ. All kinds of images that point to the Christ. And Paul goes to those and says, look, this Messiah, this Christ that you're expecting, had to suffer and rise from the dead. And maybe Paul went to Isaiah 53, which talks about the servant of the Lord who bears the weight of the sin of the world and dies, but then lives. Maybe he pointed to the the exile of God's people, who God then brings back. Maybe he pointed to the rebuilding of the temple. Maybe he pointed to the fact that God's prophets and God's servants throughout the centuries always suffered. And the Christ had to suffer. Many references in the Psalms, Psalms, Psalm 22 and others. And maybe Paul showed them all of that and brought them to the place where they said, you know what, you're right. We were just expecting a glorious messianic king, but you're right. The scriptures teach us that the Christ, when he comes, has to suffer and die. And then Paul says, now, there is a man, Jesus, who fulfills these things. Therefore, he must be the Christ. And he proves it to them from the scriptures. He explains and reasons to the point where many people say, you're right, this Jesus must be the Christ prophesied in the Old Testament. And people respond as many of them always did when Paul was reasoning and preaching. Verse 4, some were persuaded, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But then in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And here's this for a phrase. The the NIV translation obscures it a little bit. But this is a little bit more literal from the original. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, who was hosting Paul and Silas. You have Paul on one hand, interacting with the Jews and reasoning, persuading, explaining, proving. Then you have the Jews on the other hand, not reasoning back, but taking the worst from the back streets, taking the wicked men of the rabble. So you have the rabble. They take the worst of them, the most wicked, take them and form a mob and then turn the whole city in an uproar. Basically start a riot. All because they have been jealous. What a contrast, what a picture. And the reason they're doing that is is that even though Paul had proved to them that the, the Christ that they were waiting for was Jesus and had already come, They refused to believe. They were unable to believe. They were blinded. They were willfully blind to the truth. And instead of reacting, you know what, Paul? That's okay for you. That's your truth. You're welcome to believe that. Instead, they get violent and form a mob. And this sets the tone for the church in Thessalonica. 
The church was born out of conflict and violence. If you look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, not too long after this, I'll just quote a couple places. First Thessalonians chapter 6. Um, you became imitators, Paul says, of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Chapter 2 and verse 2. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And then a letter he wrote much later, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, and so on. It seems like conflict and affliction for the sake of the gospel was the norm in Thessalonica. As soon as the gospel came, there was violent opposition to it. And years later, the Christians who had come to faith in Jesus Christ were still facing affliction and opposition. I'm not sure that it would have wanted to be a Christian in Thessalonica, in those days. Failing to find Paul and Silas, the mob grabs whoever they can, who is Jason, their host, and drags him before the magistrates of the city, the authorities. And verse 6, this is what they say. This is what they shout, actually. This is a mob, remember. So this is the charge brought against Paul and Silas and those who are of their ilk. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, the NIV again says those who have caused trouble, literally those who have turned the world upside down, have come here now also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. See the impact that Paul has been having in all the cities that he has come through. Everywhere, Freddie told us last week, Paul is trying to go places to minister and God is shutting doors left, right, and center until he brings him to a place where Paul's wondering what it is he needs to do, maybe feeling like a failure, maybe wondering, I don't know, goes to Philippi, there's not even a synagogue to reason in, ends up getting beaten and thrown in jail, now comes to Thessalonica, I mean, Paul has has had conflict every step of the way on his first journey and his second. And these Jews now say that these men have turned the world upside down. They know Paul's track record. Everywhere Paul has come with the gospel, they've turned the world upside down. Sometimes maybe in Paul's eyes, the fruit has seemed kind of small and minimal. But where the gospel comes, it has turned the world upside down. It has rocked the boat. It has shaken things up. It shows us, by the way, that these Jews have either been following Paul from place to place, which in some ways it appears that they have, or at least that the news has traveled ahead of Paul what happens every time this man shows up in the city. Turning the world upside down. 
Why are the Jews so mad? Has, has Paul not just proved to them that Jesus is the Christ? And yet here they have this deliberate plot to undermine the truth of the scriptures that they know so well. Again, they're blinded and refuse to believe. And so they come to the city authorities and say that Paul's turned the world upside down. I'm going to come back to that phrase, turn the world upside down, in a minute. We see how the Jews totally trip over themselves to compromise themselves. Here's the charge that they bring against Paul in verse 7, that, that Paul and these missionaries and now Jason and the believers are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. See, the, the Jews are making it sound like Paul is actively preaching treason in Thessalonica. The Jews are saying that even though they don't care for Caesar, right? They're actually waiting for another king. The idea of another king other than Caesar is not a strange idea for them. They're actually longing for it themselves. And yet they come with this charge against Paul and Silas and Jason that they're saying, hey, there's another king other than Caesar. They will pretend They'll pretend loyalty to Caesar when it suits them. You might remember they did the same thing with Jesus. After their own little trial of charging Jesus with blasphemy, they bring him to Pilate and say he's actually inciting rebellion against Rome, says he's a king. They change the charge, pretend they're standing up for Caesar when it suits their fancy to do so. But the fact is that they were right. The gospel did and does call for a different loyalty than the prevailing one. Paul was not preaching treason per se, but in an empire that claimed Caesar is Lord, the gospel says Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord of all. In our culture, on this Canada Day, our culture doesn't say absolute allegiance to the government. Our culture doesn't say the progressive conservatives are Lord. But our culture does have a Lord. Our culture does make decrees about who is Lord and who is Lord in our culture. Culture says, you are. I'm Lord. I saw a movie preview this week for a movie coming out called Anna Karenina. It's the story based on the novel by Leo Tolstoy. A woman who carries on an adulterous affair, destroys her marriage, family, reputation, ultimately is driven to despair and suicide, all for the sake of love. That's the script of our culture. Me first. I want no matter the cost. I'm going to follow my heart if it costs me my family, my reputation, if it destroys everything around me. Me first. And interestingly, this movie preview seems to indicate that the movie leaves out Tolstoy's parallel storyline in the novel, the story of the man Levin a man of conscience and virtue who chooses what is right and good despite being ridiculed for it sometimes and ends up settled and content. 
And Tolstoy, in writing this book, deliberately sets the stories of Levin and Anna Karenina against each other to demonstrate that one set of values destroys and one does not. But our culture can't make a movie like that because it violates the script of our culture, which says that what I want is the highest value. I want is today's decree of Caesar. I've heard it said, and I think it's right, that all of the sin issues in the life of anyone and all of the pain that results from it, emotional, relational, crime, divorce, financial pain, addiction, adultery, jealousy, that all of these issues in the life of somebody are rooted in the self-centeredness that expresses itself in three ways. Me first, I want, and poor me. And I think that it's true. I want, me first, and poor me. I think all of our sin and relational issues can be boiled down to that. And yet that is the decree of our culture. And the gospel still goes against the decrees of our day. But here's where the Jews got it wrong. The gospel doesn't turn the world upside down. It turns it right side up. And in a culture that is upside down, right side up looks upside down. If I was walking on the ceiling, you would all look upside down to me. But you're right side up, and the gospel is right side up, and the impact that the truth of Jesus Christ makes in in the life of a person turns the world right side up. But in an upside down world, we don't want that. It violates the script, it violates the decrees of our culture, it violates the decrees of Caesar. Caesar is Lord is an upside down reality. Jesus is Lord is right side up in the way that things should be. And it was Rome and not Paul who was preaching treason by saying Caesar is Lord. That's the treasonous statement. That's the violation against the true lordship of Jesus. Our culture and my own heart is treasonous when it says, I am Lord. When I am choosing me first and I want and poor me. I'm upside down and I'm committing treason against Jesus who is Lord and under whose dominion I live. The Jews says they're turning the world upside down. I say the gospel is turning the world right side up. The Jews say they're preaching against Caesar saying there's another king. I say the empire was preaching against Jesus and saying there's another king. When there isn't, Jesus is Lord. So that's the charges that are brought against Paul, Silas, Jason, and the other believers. And I wonder what the charges would be brought if I was brought up on charges. And if we as a church were brought up on charges, what would, 
what would they say against us? I hope that they would say the same things. I hope that they would say, this congregation, this pastor is violating everything that we know that our country stands for. Comfort and leisure and ease and moving ahead and moving up and seeking yourself first and success and ambition. And if you don't like what you got, go get something else that works better for you. Would those be the charges that they brought against us? Could the charges brought against me say, that man preaches that I am not the Lord, but that Jesus is. That man has the gall to tell me and to tell his people that they're not the most important players in their own life, but Jesus is. That Jesus has decision-making authority. That Jesus' values are the ones that reign supreme. I hope that I'm telling you that week after week. I hope that I'm living that. And I'm hoping that others that interact with me in the world outside the church would recognize that that is what I am proclaiming with my life and with my words. And I hope that you are doing the same. I hope that we are guilty of living right side up. The authorities sort of receive the charges, but don't put Paul and Silas or Jason in jail. They can't find Paul and Silas. But they release Jason, making them post bond, just a way of saying, Paul and Silas are your responsibility. If, any, if they stir up trouble, Jason, we're putting you in jail. You're vouching for them. And Paul and Silas end up leaving under cover of night to go to the next city. And where they go is to Berea. Verse 10. And these stories of Thessalonica and Berea are put back to back on purpose because the contrast between the two is explicit in the text. They go to Berea, verse 10, go into the synagogue. What are they going to do there? What do you think? They're going to reason, prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 11. Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The character study between these two is so contrasting. The Bereans are more noble. They're not prone to jealousy. They're noble. They they subject themselves willingly to the truth of Scripture. They examined the Scripture, which, by the way, is the right response to reasoning. In fact, when trouble brews in Berea, it's because the Thessalonians have come and instigated the trouble again. I love the Bereans. When I preach every Sunday... I've got to ask you this, put you on the spot, but I open a passage of scripture and in some measure I walk us through it like I am today, sometimes just highlight some things, but I, I try to say every week, this is what God is saying in the scripture, this is, this is what it's about, this is the point, this is why it matters, and I hope more weeks than not, every week ideally, that we open the passage of the scriptures and I say, this points us to Jesus and here's how. And your job 
And this is more than just a, I hope you. This is your job. Is to look at the scriptures and say, is what Ken's saying right? Does this align with the scriptural testimony as a whole? Because if I'm not, then I'm failing. But you need to be in the scriptures every week as well. You can't just take my food and live on it. You need to eat. You need to go to the scriptures and examine. And as I reason and explain and proclaim, you go to the scriptures and examine. And in such a way, we grow together. The Brians are such a great example. I wish we had an epistle to the Brians. I wish Paul had written them a letter where he didn't have to, wasn't sidetracked by all the issues in the churches that he had to address. If he could just write a a straight-ahead letter to a healthy church, I wonder what he would have said. I'd love to read that. But even in Berea, the Thessalonians come, verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to safety again. Silas and Timothy remained there to do ministry. Here's one of the significant things about all of the ministry of Paul. And this won't change until another full chapter when he comes to Corinth. But have you noticed that the gospel advances from Antioch to Rome as Paul is forcibly removed from city after city? That's how the gospel moves forward. He's not grabbing the ball and running a play to the end zone. He gets punted down the field. And have you ever thought that in in our ministry as a church, and maybe your own personal ministry, whatever that is, in a program context or your ministry to a person, have you ever felt like when everything is going wrong, that is a sure sign that the kingdom is not moving forward in your life or in the church or in the neighborhood? When things are going swimmingly, that's when we know that God is at work, right? When people are coming in droves to hear the gospel or we do an event and there's incredible attendance and man, you could just keep doing that for several years and look at the fruits getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Paul had failure in city after city. Violence, fruit, people coming to faith, but more opposition than not. And he got kicked out, either kicked out explicitly or asked to leave Philippi or having the Christians feeling so much pressure that they hustle him out. At no point up until here do we have Paul looking around and saying, you know what? Church is stable, it's planted, I think I can go and move on. Hasn't happened yet. It will, but it hasn't happened yet. And the gospel advances as Paul is forcibly removed from city after city. It's not till Corinth and Ephesus in a chapter or two that he plants himself for two and a half and three years, respectively. That's how God moves his kingdom forward. That's how he moves his kingdom forward in my life and in your life. Through hardship, crisis and struggle and questions and a forcible moving from one direction to another. 
That's how God most often works. And eventually the gospel will come to Rome where Caesar is Lord and it'll come there with Paul in chains. Spending two years in prison proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's how Acts ends. In Caesar's backyard, Paul brings a kingdom. I want to close this morning by asking you to think about, and not just sort of pause for a moment, but think hard, and I need to think hard, about what the reality of Jesus' lordship, his dominion over your life means. And to specifically ask, where in my life am I saying me first? I want poor me. Where in your life are you saying me first? I want and poor me. Might be in the area of time or emotions, anger, criticism. Might be in the life of the church. It might be with respect to money or leisure. It might be in the context of your marriage or your parenting, the, the privileges of retirement. Might be your reputation. It might be how you're thinking of the people around you and how they have treated you. Over all of these things, Jesus is Lord. And don't believe the decrees of our culture that says that you are. And that wants me to believe that I am Lord in my heart, in my home in my ministry, in my bank account, in my time. The gospel of Christianity is a gospel of lordship. Which means not just that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, but that those sins are by definition all the ways in which we have rebelled against God's lordship. And to be a Christian, that is to live right side up, is by definition repentance from rebellion and resubmission to the lordship of God. It's to recognize that God has moved us from one dominion where sin had its way in our lives and has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And in that kingdom we live right side up. To be a Christian is not to put your faith in Jesus so we go to heaven. To be a Christian, by definition, is to say, Jesus is my Lord forever and in this moment. And on this Canada Day, it's wonderful to celebrate our nation's birthday. It's wonderful for us to be conscious of our citizenship. But it's essential, too, to remember the kingdom of which we have become a part by God's grace. May you live today. May I live today. May we as a church live from here and into the future as citizens of the dominion 
of Jesus Christ. And may we walk and live right side up. Even if the world thinks we're upside down, may we live right side up. That the world might know that there is a king. And his name is Jesus. Unto this king, immortal and invisible and the only wise God, be honor and glory and power and praise now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, come to you at the end of our time together this service, reminded that you are Lord, and saying Lord Jesus is a phrase that comes so easily to our lips in prayer. I need to be reminded over and over again, if not continually, that you are Lord. And I tend to give you things periodically or in sections, but my life belongs to you in its entirety, every heartbeat, every breath, every moment. So Lord Jesus, we choose now to resubmit ourselves or to remind ourselves that we are under your lordship. And we ask for your help in living and walking right side up and not falling for the decrees, the lies of our culture that would have us think that we are more in control of our lives than we really are. In every imaginable way, we belong to you as does our church and our life together as a church. Help us to violate the values of our culture in such a way that is reasonable and demonstrates and proves the kingship of Christ. I pray that I and we would be able to live constantly in such a way that somebody takes a representative sample of a citizen of heaven in a representative sample of a citizen of the world and puts us side by side and every time points to the citizen of heaven and acknowledges that is how life should be. The God that that person serves is the only God. And may we reflect you accurately as a testimony to the world that more and more people will then realize how upside down they are And we'll come find health and life in Christ. We want to glorify you. I thank you for the truth of the scriptures. And what it teaches us about Jesus. And what the gospel does. The impact that it has and how hard and joyful service of the gospel is. Lord, thank you for the blessing of this day. And will you show each one of us that corner of our heart where we've hung a sign that says, me first. 
And will you clean out that corner? We offer ourselves to you for you to do as you wish with us. For the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. In his witness to a lost and broken world. We pray. Amen. Amen. Some of you will know the, uh, the song, He is Lord. He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can we just, if you know it, just sing it together and we'll be dismissed. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. Go live your life in this day in the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are dismissed.